my tongue has always gotten me into trouble. I remember mine and Christine's first marital argument, or at least what I remember to be that first argument. Who knows exactly if it was or not, but we lived in this little bitty duplex, and we were standing in this little kitchen. I can still picture it all in my mind, and I don't know what the argument was about, but that's the way a lot of life is, right? You can't remember what the argument is about a week later, much less 23 years later. But, but what was true then is that my wife was very upset with me, and you have to know that uh, she gets a little more animated, should we say, in these kind of conversations than I do. And so she gets kind of intense, and her voice raises, and her eyes get bigger. You know, whenever she does that to the kids, they call her the big-eyed mama. Uh, kind of diffuses the situation. <laughs> but, but so she's getting worked up. I'm sure I deserved it. I don't know what I did. But, but the voice and the, and the eyes. And, you know, this is one of these real sophisticated kind of discussions. You know, the kind where I say, why are you yelling at me? I'm not yelling. Do you want to see yelling? You know, one of those kind of real spiritual Christ-like, trust your pastor kind of arguments, yeah. Anyway, that's where we were in the middle of one of those things, and, and I, I said this to her, I said, dear, if you ever want to have a conversation like an adult, I'm happy to do that anytime, but if you're going to act like a child, then this is over. <laughs> that wasn't a good night. <laughs> Just a little warning, write that down in your book, don't do that, because that does not turn out well. I think then we had a fight within the fight. I don't know if you ever had that before, but you got to fight within the fight because the first uh, fight you got to solve is how you're fighting. Then you can move on to what you're fighting about, but it takes a while to get there. Uh, it's gotten me in trouble. My tongue's gotten me in trouble in other ways, too. Um, a couple years ago, Christine and I were at some friend's house, and uh, there were about 15, 20 people there, something like that. And uh, for some reason, they had this CD on that was driving me crazy. I thought it was horrible music, and I'm like, gosh, this music is brutal. I've got to get out of here. So I said that to everybody. This is horrible. And then I went out on the deck, and I started talking to a few people out there. And, and what I didn't know is that while I was out on the deck, they took out the CD I didn't like, and they put in a different CD. The hostess put in a CD of her and some of her friends singing. I didn't know that. So I walked back in, and I go, gosh, this music has gotten worse now. Who is this? Woo! And the whole room gets quiet. I'm like, what do I do? They're all looking at me, and they're like, it's her. I'm like, oh, golly. That wasn't another good night either. My tongue's always gotten me into trouble, and maybe um, you can identify with that. It's important. Our tongue or how we talk is incredibly important because the Bible says that it is one of the tests of whether our faith is genuine. You might remember we read this verse, chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 26, a few weeks ago. It says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So what James is saying is that if you claim to have genuine faith, but it's not changing how you talk, then that may be an indicator that your faith isn't genuine after all. If you weren't here last week, you missed a great sermon. I thought Shay did a great job of explaining James 2. And it's a really important message there in the book of James. And if you want, you can download it or you can get it out in the bookstore. But I encourage you to listen to it because what he explained is that James says that whenever we have genuine faith, whenever a person has genuine faith in Christ, that their life always changes. Or at least is in the process of changing. And so what James is doing now in this book is he's laying out what this changed life looks like. He's kind of saying, okay, here's God's agenda for the life of every Christian. 
And what we've seen is, is that, that, that when you know Christ, when you meet Christ and he changes your life, he's going to change how you view trials. We saw that in James chapter 1. Instead of running from trials and trying to avoid them and wish they weren't there because we want a comfortable, hassle-free life, a Christian learns that those trials come from God. And so they embrace them because they know that, that it's through those trials that God teaches them and shapes them into the people he wants them to be. James has told us that when we meet Christ, it'll change how we view the rich and the poor. Or if we are rich or poor, it will change what we put our hope in. We've seen that when we meet Christ, it'll change how we think about orphans or how we defend widows or how we meet people's needs in our community. Well, now we're in James chapter 3. And if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there. In James chapter 3, what he's going to teach us this morning is that when we meet Jesus, it changes how we talk. Turn to James chapter 3. But while you're turning there, let me kind of give you the big picture. We talk. Because God talks. In fact, if you go all the way back into Genesis 1 and ask, what's the first thing that God does in the Bible? He speaks. He says, let there be light. And because, or words are important because God created them. And God's word is incredibly powerful. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. But the Bible says that God doesn't just create with his word, he also sustains the universe by the power of his word. And the Bible says that God's word never returns void, which simply means that God's word always accomplishes his purpose. Now every human being is created in the image of God. And that's why we talk. We talk because God talks. And words in our talk define some of the key moments of our life. I remember my first child's first word. You know, do you ever, if you have children, you, you remember the first word you heard them say? I asked Christine what our second, third, and fourth child said first word, and she said, I have no idea. <laughs> I didn't write those down. But the first one is important, I guess. And so, so I remember we were talking about, was it mom or dad that he said? You know, because you couldn't quite tell exactly. It could have been just indigestion or something. But was it mom or dad? And I thought I had the advantage because I was pretty sure that the first letter was a D. And so I thought it was dad. It turned out to be dog. So it wasn't quite as big a deal as I'd hoped it would be. I remember when I was in preschool and my uh, preschool teacher washed my mouth out with soap. And I'm not sure exactly what I did to deserve that, but it is evidence that my tongue has been getting me in trouble for a lot of years. I remember the last conversation I had with my grandmother. We were extremely close, and she was dying, and I got a phone call from my aunt or my mom and saying, hey, she doesn't have much longer. And I dropped everything and drove to St. Louis, and I remember sitting in her living room and in a chair visiting with her for the very last time that I'd see her in this world. You see, it's words and conversation and talk that define key moments in our life, key moments in history. It was through the power of words that Adolf Hitler caused a nation to turn against a religion and a race. And it was the words that Winston Churchill used that called the free world to defend against Hitler and conquer him. 
It was by the power of words that Martin Luther King Jr. awakened a nation's conscience to what it was doing to its own people. Words are incredibly important. There are the hurtful words, words that do harm. Sometimes those are words spoken by us, and sometimes those have been words spoken to us. But we have all know what it's like to be in a situation where you wanted to get words back, but you can't. You can't get the toothpaste back in the tube, and you can't take those words back. There was a Super Bowl commercial in 2011 that played on this idea that you can't get your words back. Let's watch it. Oh, oh no. Rod, you sent this email, reply all. You hit reply all. You know, I was wrong. You just sent this email to me. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> For drivers who want to get the most out of their cars, it's Bridgestone or nothing. You ever been in that situation you wanted to get those words back, but you couldn't? Early on in the church, I, I think I told this story a couple years ago, but early on in the church, before this building was ever built or anything, we were, uh, I, I was sitting in my office, there's a woman that still attends the church, God bless her, we haven't offended her yet, and she uh, worked on a lot of projects. Her name's Chris, and she worked on all kinds of projects and still does a lot with us and for us, and so, so she was working on a particular project, and she and I were exchanging emails at the time, but I was also kind of at the same time working at my desk and also emailing my wife, and so uh, Chris had emailed me a question, and I responded back to her, hit reply, thinking I was emailing my wife, and I said, hey, sexy mama, what you doing tonight? <laughs> And after I hit send, I thought, oh my gosh. What about I walked out of the office and I said, it's over. My job is over. I have now called another woman's sexy mama. It was nice being a pastor here. My life is over. <laughs> what about you? Do you have a tongue problem? Could you go 24 hours without being critical, without complaining, without gossiping, without saying anything hurtful? or unkind, or condemning, or judgmental, or harsh, or angry, or selfish. There's a guy named Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. He wrote a book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And he lectures on this topic all around the country. And that's a question he asks his audience during the lectures. Could you go 24 hours without saying anything inappropriate or unkind? Most people are, know themselves well enough to say no. And then he says, that's evidence that you have a serious problem. He goes on to say that if you can't drink, if you can't go 24 hours without drinking alcohol, we'd say you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without a cigarette, we'd say you're addicted to nicotine. Well, if you can't go 24 hours without saying something unkind or inappropriate, then you have a serious problem, he says. You've lost control of your tongue. See, there's probably no greater evidence in our life, consistent, ever-present evidence of our life, of our need for God's grace, of the grace that forgives and the grace that transforms. No greater evidence that, that we need God's grace than our tongue, than the way we talk to people. Well, let's dive in to James chapter 
3. And we'll start in verse 2. And he's going to start by unpacking the problem for us. So James 3, verse 2. He says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So, so James essentially says, look, if you can control your tongue, then you can control your whole life. You're perfect. You're mature. You're complete. If you can go without say, saying anything bitter or condemning, if you can go your whole life, not 24 hours, but your whole life without that, then you've got life under control. Of course, the obvious answer is that none of us can do that. But what I really want you to see here is the first word in that sentence, the first word in that verse, the word we. See, James up to this point has been teaching, hey, you ought to do that, you should do this, keep this in mind. But now he puts himself in it. And he says, I've got the same problem you have. When it comes to the tongue, none of us exempt, none of us are immune. Here's Jesus' half-brother, the one who had seen the resurrected Lord, an apostle, a pillar of the early church. And he says, I can't talk about the tongue without saying that I'm right there with you. I'm right there next to you. I have a tongue problem. And it's as if James knows that we're going to think maybe he's exaggerating. I mean, he says that, that if you uh, uh, can keep your tongue under control, you're a perfect person. Perhaps he's exaggerating a bit. And so he transitions into the next verse by showing us not just the problem, but also the power of the tongue. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Here's where James's straightforward style helps us. Because what his point is, is pretty clear for us to discern, isn't it? He's saying, think of a horse for a second. A big, powerful animal, stronger and faster than any human being. And yet, if you take a bit and put it in its mouth, even a small child can ride that horse and direct the horse wherever he or she wants it to go. Or take a ship. Imagine one of these large cruise ships. Massive in size. Thousands of tons. And yet, if you just give the pilot control of the rudder, that pilot can make that massive ship go wherever he or she wants it to go. See, our words are far more powerful than we realize. And that's why Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue, we can, with the tongue, we can build up and tear down. We can encourage people and discourage them. We can vent sinful anger or we can demonstrate patience. We can be self-centered and selfish or self-sacrificial and loving. Our words are more powerful than we think. It is words that separate close friends and that crush people's spirits. The old kid's nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. See, sticks and stones can break bones, but bones heal. Bruises heal. Names hurt much longer, 
and they are much harder to heal if they ever heal at all. So what about you? If you're a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, a friend, a roommate, a child, how do your words affect the people around you? What are you saying? Moms and dads, are are you talking to your kids in a way that makes them want to draw near to you? Do you blow up and then say, oh, they know I really love them? Really? Husbands and wives, do you talk to one another in a way that, to the husband, do do your words demonstrate your love for your wife? Do you really cherish her? Wives, do your words demonstrate that you love and respect your husband? Are your words the kind of words that draw people in, that they want to be around you, that they say, I want to hear more of what he or she has to say. I want to hear more wisdom. Or do your words put up walls and barriers? Do your words alienate people and push them away? Well, our words, because they are so powerful, they can do a lot of damage. Verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. See, James is making it clear that the tongue may be small, but it has the potential to do great harm. I don't know if you're familiar with the great Chicago fire, but having lived there for a few years, you can't really be a part of the city and not know something about it. There are markers downtown that show where the fire came through and how much it destroyed. See, on, on, in 1871, on October 8th at 9 o'clock on a Sunday evening, there was a woman named Mrs. O'Leary working in her barn, and her cow knocked over a lantern, and that small spark devastated the city of Chicago. 17,000 buildings destroyed, over 200 people died. But that wasn't the biggest fire that year. It wasn't even the biggest fire that started that day, because on that exact same day in 1871, a fire started in the woods of northern Wisconsin and burned for a month, killing more people than the Chicago fire did. So James's point here is this, is that your tongue may be small, but it can do great damage. His point is that you and I might be committing spiritual arson with our tongue, leaving destruction and damage in our path. Now James isn't specific about the sins of the tongue that he's thinking of, but I think if this is going to be helpful for you and me, we're going to have to get specific about which sins of the tongue that we personally deal with. And the Bible talks about a variety of sins that every one of us struggles with. So let's dig a little deeper and get more specific. We won't be able to talk about every sin of the tongue. There's just too many. And we won't be able to say as much about every single one, but at least we can give ourselves an idea of what kind of sins the Bible's thinking of here. Let's start with gossip. And we start there because of the damage it does and the prevalence in our day. Gossip is saying something negative about someone behind their back. And gossip can really destroy people's lives. It starts off with, uh, hey, did you hear? 
hey, so-and-so told me, keep this to yourself, but I'm not sure it's true, but I heard, I wouldn't tell you, but I know it won't go any further than you. I can trust you, so I can tell you. Or the more spiritual guys, I'm going to share this because I know you'll pray for him. See, gossip is attractive to us. I know we don't want to admit it. I know that we wish it weren't so. But there's something about gossip that we find appealing or we wouldn't do it. And that's the point of Proverbs 18.8. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. There's something fun about it. What is it that attracts us to gossip about other people? Well, well I think part of it is that, that, that we enjoy making other people's trials and difficulties uh, into entertainment. We don't have anything else to do, so we sit around and we talk about other people's lives. I think part of it is because when we gossip about other people's trials and difficulties and hardships, what it does is it makes us feel better about ourselves. Well, at least we're not like that family. And whether that's ever said or not, we get a little boost to our image, our parenting, our job, our career, our wise choices, our spiritual life, because at least we're better than these people. See, there's something about gossip that's attractive, but when we unmask it, what we see is that it destroys people. Now, we're good at justifying, we're good at rationalizing about what we do is not gossip. That's something different. But come on, people, you've got to be honest. See, gossip is so destructive because the other person isn't there. The person being talked about isn't present. And so they can't explain what, why they got in that situation. They can't ever uh, give us perspective. They can't say, that's not true. I don't know where you got that crazy idea, but it's not true. So here's another person that's made in the image of God that we are running down and they're not even there to explain the situation. And then that gossip ruins their reputation. It ruins friendships. It ruins their, um, maybe their leadership position. And all those things are almost impossible to get back because other people have an opinion about you and you're not even sure where they got it from. Flattery is a sin that most of us don't think much about, and yet the book of Proverbs says it too is a sin. If gossip is saying behind someone's, or behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face, flattery is saying to their face what you wouldn't say behind their back. See, flattery is schmoozing and sucking up and giving false praise to someone, all because you want to manipulate them. It's essentially lying to someone about who they want to be so that you can manipulate and pull the strings so that you can get what you want. Or how about this one? Grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2 tells us we should do everything without grumbling and complaining. How's that going for you? Book of Exodus, Moses is telling us about the Israelites wandering in the desert and how God provided quail, meat, and manna, which is bread for them to eat. But the Israelites grew tired of it and they began to grumble and complain. We read verse 8. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we 
you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. See, we think our grumbling is against people or against circumstances. But God says, no, all of our grumbling and complaining is really against him. No, no, it's not, you say. I just don't like my boss. I'm grumbling about him or her. I don't like uh, my job. I'm grumbling about that. I don't like the weather. It's not what I wanted it to be today. I'm grumbling and complaining about the weather, about circumstances. I'm grumbling about the car breaking down and the hassle it is to go through and fix it. And God says, no, 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 no. You're really grumbling against me because I'm the one who put you under that boss. I'm the one who gave you that job. I'm the one who controls the weather. I'm the one who even call, controls cars and mechanics and breakdowns. And so when you grumble about your life, you're not just grumbling about another person or circumstances. You're grumbling against me and my will. All of our grumbling is against God. What about lying? We know what lying is. So let's just figure out what's the source of lying. And to that we turn to John 8.44 where Jesus said this. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Those half-truths you tell, the all-out deception, the exaggeration where you distort the truth to make yourself look better, those are lies and their source is Satan himself, for he is the father of lies. Or there's impure speech. Just time to read a couple verses. Ephesians 5.4 Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. Colossians 3.8 But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now here's the deal. You and I, the Bible says, are accountable before God for every careless word we speak. For every word we've ever spoken, we will give an account before God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. I tell you on the day of judgment. So in other words, there's a day that you and I, will, every person who's ever lived, will stand before a holy, righteous, almighty God. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, every planned and unplanned word, every intentional and unintentional word, every thought through word, and every mistaken word. For by your words, Jesus says, you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So we've seen the problem, we've seen the power, we've seen the damage our tongue can do. Now let's go to the root. Verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Now don't remember that. That when we're running down someone, when we're accusing or slandering someone, when we're lying to someone or gossiping about someone, that's someone that God made in his image. Someone God loves. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? 
Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. See, James's point here is that our mouth is not independent from the rest of us, but our mouth is vitally connected to who we are as people. That's why he's saying a fig tree can't bear olives and a grapevine can't bear figs and a, and a salt water doesn't a salt water spring doesn't produce fresh water. What, what he's saying is that what comes out of our mouth is unfailingly connected to what is inside of us. What comes out of our mouth unfailingly reveals what's going on inside. Proverbs 12:23. The prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart blurts out folly. Where does the foolishness, where does the folly come from? When you blurt it out verbally, it comes from the heart. Jesus makes the same point. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So what do our tongues reveal? They reveal that our hearts are flawed. We've got a heart problem. See, I don't want to believe that the problem of my words is really within me. I want to believe it's something else. I want to believe it's circumstances. You know, if you were as tired as I am, you'd understand why I did that, why I said that. If you had the stress going on in your life, you'd know why I responded that way. If you knew how bad my allergies were, how sick I was, you would get it. It's okay. That's not really me. That's my allergies talking. No. It's your heart talking. We want to blame other people. If you knew how difficult my boss was, if you knew how difficult my spouse was, if you knew how difficult my roommate was, if you knew how difficult people at school were, people on the team were, if you, if, if you knew the kids I had to put up with, you'd know why. No. It's a heart issue. The condition of your heart always is revealed by the words you speak. Tongue problems reveal heart problems. And so in response to our heart problems, what James does not do is offer us communication techniques. No, he doesn't do that. What James does is he offers us a savior. Because James doesn't think our primary need is to have tips to argue better or get better communication skills. What James thinks our primary need is, is we need a Savior. James 3, verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Anybody who's been to SeaWorld or the circus knows you can tame an animal, but you can't. No human being can tame the tongue. Try it. See how far you'll go today. No gossip, no lying, no complaining, no impure speech. See how that goes. And you know where it's going to drive you? The same place it drives every single one of us. Drives us to the point of helplessness. Drives us to our sin where we say, I can't do this. It makes us confront the sin that really is in our life and that we are helpless to defeat it, helpless to change. Watch what Augustine 
says. He's the early church father, about 350. He says this. He does not say, so he's reflecting on the verses we just read out of James 3, 7, and 8. He does not say that no one contained the tongue, but no one of me. In other words, no human being contained the tongue. So that when it is tamed, we confess that it is brought about by the pity, the help, the grace of God. No human being can tame the tongue, but there is one who can tame your tongue and my tongue. His name is Jesus. The Bible says of Jesus, no deceit was found in his mouth. Never did he get sinfully angry. Never did he lie or deceive. Never did he gossip or offer inappropriate words of condemnation. His talk was perfect in every way. He always obeyed God's command found in Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Jesus is the only one who always obeyed that command. He lived a perfect life for you and me. He went to the cross to die for our sins, to pay for our sins, even our sins of the tongue, our sins of talk. We cannot tame the tongue, but He can. We come to the end of ourselves, to our own helplessness, to our own sinfulness, and it should drive us to our knees where we cry out for mercy from God. And we ask Him, Oh, God, change our heart and tame our tongue. See, I don't need more advice. What I need is a Savior. The music team's going to come back up and continue to lead us. Will you bow your head and close your eyes and just pray with me for a moment before they come? Is there something that you need to talk to God about concerning your tongue? Is there something you need to say to Him? Are there sins that need to be confessed? Do you have a desire in your heart to change? Knowing you can't change yourself Cry out to God and ask Him to give you a new heart, to change your heart. The good news is that Jesus Christ forgives sinners. And when we meet Jesus, He begins to change us. Ask God to help you remember that when you speak against someone, you're speaking against a person made in His image. Someone that He loved. Oh God, have mercy upon us, for we are sinners. We pray that you would change our heart and tame our tongue. Amen.